0: ambition and motivation to succeed uh, is similar across both populations. Uh, In point of fact, given the extra pressures of trying to be an age group or amateur athlete and uh, the more balls that you have to juggle to fit in training and work and uh, family and everything that goes with it, uh, the Obsessive traits, and I use that as a, as affectionately, um, is probably as heightened, if not more heightened, in those athletes than in the pros who have a bit more time to get things done. Um, so... They aren't dissimilar, the two populations. The motivators uh, are there to succeed and whether it's to win a professional race or to do, you know, achieve your next goal as an amateur, it's, it's not
1: different. Welcome to the Effortless Swimming Podcast, the show that helps swimmers and triathletes love the water, become a better swimmer, and live a better life. Here's your host, Brenton Ford. Welcome to the Effortless Swimming podcast. My guest today is Bevan McKinnon. He is a coach at Fitter Coaching, and he hosts a podcast called Fitter Radio. And Bevan coaches multiple pro triathletes who have won several Ironman and 70.3 distance events. He has also won the Age Group World Championships in Kona, the ITU long course event, and the 70.3 distance at World Champs. So very accomplished coach and athlete himself. In this episode, we're talking about some of the lessons that he's learned over the last several years of coaching and how they might apply to triathletes and swimmers who are looking to get better at the swimming. Some of the things that I quite enjoyed in this podcast was we talked about swim shoots or swim sponges and how training with resistance can help you increase your stroke rate. We also talk a little bit about how you might approach your training, whether you should do the sets that your coach gives you or should you go more based on how you feel. We also talk a bit about changing diet and using fasting as a way to get rid of some of the crap that's in your body. And we also talk about swim technique and how if you marry the right swim technique with the right workouts, how that can be a very powerful combination. So let's get into the podcast with Bevan McKinnon. Welcome to the Effortless swimming Podcast, uh, episode number 179. My guest today is Bevan McKinnon from Fitter Radio. So Bevan, welcome back. And the last time I think I had you on I think you're about day three of an eight day fast. So you're looking much happier, much chirpier than last time.
0: Am I looking skinnier?
1: Uh, <laughs> I don't know if the effects last that long, but uh, yeah, it's a you're loaded uh,
0: load question. Yeah. You didn't know where to go with that one, did
1: you? <laughs> I hope I. Rigged my way out of it well enough
0: <laughs> yeah I actually think I was probably closer to about day maybe eight or nine what of what ended up being I think at the uh, my partner Chris said to me she said uh this is getting ridiculous um because I was d- deep deep into ketosis at that particular point at that desire or the the drive to eat was virtually minimal so you it's sort of how long as a piece of string I could have just kept going but um now, that was an interesting uh, exercise. It was a valuable exercise. It taught me a lot about uh, fasting. It probably reinforced a lot of uh, what I had read about fasting as well. I do think there's some massive health benefits from the odd extended fast. Um, in the athlete population, however, I think it's been used... Potentially for the wrong reasons, because um, I was looking at the, a lot of the health mechanisms behind it, uh, as opposed to just improving body composition. Um, but I think, in in a, it's uh, it, like anything where you restrict your food, a lot of people are motivated to do so because they feel they're going to change their body composition. Um, but no, it was, it was a pretty interesting exercise. I've done. Two more, not of that duration, but of at least between three and five days, I think, since then. Um, And just, but that last one would have probably been about a year ago. Um, So yeah, no, it's a, yeah, very, very interesting exercise if ever you're motivated
1: to give it a go. So you're saying you're due for another one very soon, huh?
0: Uh, I don't know, really, because um, there could... My first attempts, which was the one that we last spoke about um, when I was on the podcast last, uh, was the most elongated. And I think the the effects were the most profound that, uh, through that particular fast. And, and um, just to uh, remind anyone that may have heard me talk about this in the past, in the first 48 to 72 hours, uh, this is not something that... that um, sort of the the western science picks up on as much as the eastern practices but there was quite a detoxification happening um in my kidneys at that particular point and i i experienced some fairly uh i'm going to actually say quite extreme uh pain across my lower back um and it felt like i had the worst case of flu without any other symptoms other than body aches um and that was that was in theory, removing a lot of uh, very, very long-held toxins and uh, the body was actually purging itself at that particular point. And every other extended fast I've done since then, I've never experienced exactly that same level of pain. I haven't even got uh, anywhere near it. So I think I almost did all I needed to do in that very first fast and the others have been beneficial, but by no means as probably pronounced as the effects from what I experienced from the first extended fast that
1: I did. That's interesting. And what about other people who um, perhaps any athletes you've, you've recommended to do it? Have they had any similar experiences? Um, Yeah, I did.
0: It's funny. I say, you know, don't do not do what I do because I'm a, such a, uh, a lifelong self-experimenter. And, and now that I'm not competing um, myself, I can afford to be a little bit more uh, adventurous in some of these pursuits because uh, training and adaptation to training is obviously going to be heavily compromised um, if you starve yourself <laughs> at the same time. Um, but, but like anything with our podcast, you know, um, I would talk about one of my experiences and then you'd hear, a dozen accounts of people who had gone off and actually tried to do exactly the same thing. And, you know, uh, to a certain extent, the health outcomes um, were never really reported. There were definitely some body composition improvements, which is a nice uh, benefit to have from it. But uh, I know that a lot of people have actually utilized it and continue to utilize it in some way, shape or form, even if it's time restricted eating, which is, you know, just to condense that eating window into a a six or an eight hour period where you sort of finish your last meal at six o'clock and don't eat until maybe 10 o'clock the next morning or something similar i think there's a a spectrum that people have operated on in terms of fasting and i and i still know of a lot of people that actually implement it to this day to varying degrees of uh, success for whatever they're trying to achieve from it
1: and you've recently moved uh, from the the big smoke of, of Auckland uh, out to Taupo or Topor, as some of my Kiwi friends would insist that I say. But um, and that's a pretty recent change. And we were talking about this just just before we jumped on the the podcast. But uh, how's that that been for you in terms of uh, perhaps how you're coaching, um, how you how you're thinking about um, life and lifestyle? What's that change been for you moving out where it's a bit quieter? And I mean, one of the best places you could probably train for triathlon if uh, if you're thinking of across the world it's just uh almost like the boulder of uh, of new zealand
0: i i agree with you i think um look it was not a, it was no for no other reason than initially uh we were looking to downsize our house and to attempt to buy a uh, potentially a holiday home here while still retaining a residence in auckland and we ended up finding that uh Some of the real estate here was just absolutely spectacular and it offered us uh, the opportunity to to immerse ourselves in a place that we come to so frequently for races and training and and I don't actually think you're that far off the mark by uh, talking about it uh, being um, one of New Zealand's training makers, if not possibly uh, the the best place to come and train because of what it affords us in terms of the lake. Uh, There's plenty of quiet roads to ride on. There's plenty of uh, trails to take your gravel bike or your mountain bike on. There's plenty of off-road running, Um, two pools. So two 25 meter pools, one indoor, one outdoor. Uh, You know, the population of the town isn't particularly huge. We were talking about that just beforehand and, you know, I can go down there and, and, Pretty much at any time of the day, be guaranteed a, a free lane to swim in, so that's always a bonus. Uh, but I think the biggest effect in only having been here, say nine days at the moment, is uh, we talked about it offline before about lifestyle, and there's a there's quite an obvious uh, clawing back of time that you get that you don't realise you haven't got when you're living in a big city and you're surrounded by just a busier environment. So, um, you know, we've always benefited from working from home, but you can feel that the community is just operates at a slightly slower pace. And I mm. think that you can sense that and you feel it and you can pl- actually plug into it and it slows you down a little bit. So, um, yeah, no, I think it's, it's definitely a, a, a lifestyle change that we can sense. And, I, and it's for the, the better because my job doesn't change at all. Um, I do everything uh, that I'm not working with athletes face-to-face is then done online and over Zoom Um, and so we're able to just keep everything rolling Uh, but it just feels like there's a little bit less tension in the air and a little bit less stress and yeah I can I can notice it in my sleep that you know we're, we're just on the edge of town where it's a little bit more rural so at night there's not a sound you know there's it's just a It's just pitch black and it's just completely and utterly quiet and I think that's sort of um, you can recognize it because I don't wake up as much I sleep a little bit later Uh, so there's a whole host of benefits about it and um, yeah look we should have done it years ago but uh, it is what it is we've got plenty of time left uh, on the clock so we'll just enjoy it while we can now that we're here.
1: Yeah that's fantastic and I I think I mean, we moved in February down to the, the coast and for me, it was um, the big change for me if we related back to coaching and working yeah. with people is if I'm coming from a um, from a place where I've been able to swim, been able to surf headspace wise, I'm, I feel like I can coach really well there. And yeah. in terms of just that, you're talking about a slower sort of pace. I mean, I moved from a, a place that was probably even slower than this, um, than, than where I am at the moment. But I think that kind of gives you a bit of um, perspective and a little bit of um, the ability to just sort of sit back before you make a decision. And it's like, you, you can kind of just um, weigh up your options a bit more and, and do that for your athletes as well. So I'm thinking of the the people that I'm coaching um, online. We do the stroke analysis. Like for me, I've, I've, I've been able to, um, it feels like in the last couple of months, get better results for them, um, have a sort of sort of better um. Yeah, just a, a better long-term plan with yeah. those guys because for me I'm coming from a better place and yeah as much as I'd like to think that you, the environment that you're in doesn't matter like you can just you can perform you can deliver every single time yeah there's a lot of truth to you know the environment that you're in and, and, and how you're feeling that that does determine um, how well you can do something like coaching
0: I, I totally agree i think uh, I said uh, to one of my athletes, a pro the other week you know i I, I meant to be uh you know this very calm and considered, uh, person who's, you know, not, uh, highs and lows of emotion. You've got to be very objective in your decision-making, um, dispassionate in some way you've got to care, but you, you've got to try to remain on an even keel. Um, but anyone who knows me would not describe me as that as my personality, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I can, uh, you know, like, uh, be as affected by the highs and lows of an athlete's uh, training as the athlete themselves. Uh, but the ability to be more objective um, and not as reactionary to um, the information that's being fed into you is key to being really effective and as a decision maker, as a coach. You know, I've got to act as a funnel to take all that information in and then disseminate the right stuff back out to the athlete know, um, I'd love to say that in nine days of living in Tohupo, I'm a completely existentially I've changed. Um, but I do believe that I'm changing slowly and I can sense it in, in my interactions with athletes so far. Um, they may not be able to sense it as such, but I can sense a small change. And it's literally, um, yeah, if you can remove some of the other external stresses that do influence you as a human being, um, then I think you can be a bit more objective in your practice and art as, of coaching.
1: And thinking back to the last, say, 10 years, 15 years or so of, of coaching, how is it that, that you've changed your approach? And the other question I'll add in there is you work with a lot of pros um, and a lot of age groupers. Is there a difference for you in in how you coach those athletes from a, a pro whose main job it probably is to, to get results compared to an age grouper who's working outside of that?
0: Uh, no really <laughs> is, is the long and the short of it and it's literally because uh, ambition and motivation to succeed uh, is similar across both populations uh, we in point of fact given the extra pressures of trying to be an age group or amateur athlete and uh, the more balls that you have to juggle to fit in training and work and uh, family and everything that goes with it uh, the obsessive traits and i use that as as affectionately um is probably as heightened if not more heightened in those athletes than in the pros who have a bit more time to get things done um so they aren't dissimilar the two populations the motivators uh, are there to succeed and whether it's to win a professional race or to do you know achieve your next goal as an amateur it's, it's not different um what has changed for me uh is in working more on the art of coaching than the science of coaching. Uh, Mm. I think that the science of coaching is always evolving and I always keep incredibly abreast of what's happening in the world of sports science. And it's a big part of um, my continuing to try to perfect the training program for the individual. Uh, But I actually do believe, and it's become something that uh, I work more and more on because I don't work with a, a significant, group of athletes in terms of numbers I definitely don't believe that you can coach uh, effectively on the art side of the of the coaching practice if you've got too many athletes to deal with but the psychology of performance and the psychology of getting the job done um, is as volatile as training if not more Um, and helping an athlete navigate uh, emotionally um, decision making um, how they interpret. workouts, how they execute workouts, how they execute races, um, the, the building blocks that need to be put in place to um, for long-term success as well require an element of patience, which not all athletes have. So I'm working a lot more with uh, relationships, getting to know the athlete, getting to uh, the athlete and the coach being very, very comfortable to cross-pollinate uh, ideas and information Um, you know, the greatest uh, successes we've had in coaching in recent times has been more on the psychological and emotional component of of performance as it has been the physical component of it. So uh, I wouldn't say that I'm a psychologist or a counsellor or anything like that, but there's an element of of that in me, um, which I think allows me to the, to get the best out of the people that I'm actually working with. And that's more about the art of coaching. Um, so yeah, the, the art of coaching has become a really, really big focus uh, for me and especially the last five years uh, as I've worked more and more uh, in this one-on-one setting.
1: Yeah, I would I'd, I'd tend to go that way as well. It's like with the, say the technical side of swimming, there's that's obviously important. But the thing that I, I think is more important is how do you teach that how do you frame it and, and how do you get the person to take those things on and have belief that what you're teaching or coaching them is going to, to work. And so you get that, that full buy-in. Yeah. And I went to a, um, so I went to a course in New Zealand about 12 years ago, run by an American guy living in Australia called Rich Allen. Yeah. And he's a, he's an educational psychologist and he basically teaches teachers how to teach. Yeah. And my dad sent me to this course when I was maybe 20, 21 years old and said, I did this course five years ago, one of the best things I ever did for, for coaching. And uh, so he sent me over and, and I did it. And it was amazing because even six or seven years later, I retained, I remembered all these, most of the things that he taught during this two day course. And that would be, if not the only, like one of the very few actual like courses I've gone to where you actually, you actually remember it and you can actually use those things. And yeah. so last week he had his, his last course here in Australia. Um, so I went to that uh, two-day course yeah. again, the same course, but he sort of updated it in like those 12 years. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, I just yeah. thought, wow, if I think of all the swimming coaching conferences I've gone to, yeah. if they had a, people would be 10 times better going to this two-day course that I went to last week, yeah. learning how to coach, how to teach and get people to basically learn compared to getting that technical information, because it's totally just, amazing. it is just chalk and cheese between the difference that it makes because like yeah, you know, it's, it's really comes down to, uh, can the people actually do the things that you're trying to teach them? Can they remember it? And will they then go out and actually do it? Because if they don't, what's the point? So it was just, um, such a good, such a good course for that. And the guy's name is Rich Allen. He's got a lot of books out there. Um, I think one of them's called, uh, it's like, he's got a lot, but like the power to train, but, um, I'm going to do a podcast on it and some of the things that I learned, but, um, boy, it was, um, it was so good.
0: Yeah, I almost uh, I, I wish I've had access to something similar because again, it's uh, a little bit of trial and error over the years, um, and and maybe it was just a, a something I was born with. But I do I must have had some sort of ability or a, uh, an affinity to be able to to understand people and maybe get my message across. But it's definitely not so, it's something that could be improved on. Um, you know, I. I, if I was to be honest and say, do I do I have five strings to my bow when I meet an athlete and go, oh, this is how they're going to learn or this is how they're going to learn. Um, you know, you, you just do it, attempt to find a way of getting the message across. Um, you probably become unconsciously better at those skills over time. But I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, I could, I could deliver the same conversation around a particular workout to two different athletes and get two different results from that workout because one of them just didn't understand it in the same way as the other. Uh, yeah. and, and, and that's so totally true. And I'll be scratching my head saying, but I thought it was so obvious um, but the way I might uh, deliver a message or learn in, in, my, in my own right may not be the way that that athlete does. So you, you just have to be, you've got to make sure that you take a step back and and be honest with yourself to go, is there a better, is there something I'm missing here? You know, why is it, and I had this situation just recently actually with, and it was very, it was a very challenging situation for me because, you know, as a coach of professionals and, and age groupers alike, who's had, you significant amount of success, fortunately enough, you become, when you're dealing with some simple concepts, um, you think that it's, uh, there's no point in the, there being too much discussion around these things, you know, just just follow my instruction and do it. Um, you don't need to potentially understand it. This is not a complex issue that we're dealing with here. Just Just believe in the program and off you go. Um, and this is with an, a runner that is, is has had a horrendous injury history that we're really really struggling with to work out why these injuries are turning up because we've eliminated it being a mismatch between training load um, and recovery from training load and but these these injuries are still coming and I was challenged by the athlete to say can I take over the the, the run component of the program and run, when I'm emotionally ready and believe that now is the time to run. Um, because sometimes when the pro, when the session's in the training program, I and I'm feeling a bit flat or I can feel a bit of a niggle coming on, but it's in the training program, my obsessive traits go, I have to do it, but I, I, I'm reluctant to do it. I don't <laughs> totally believe it's the right time to do it. And so we worked out that that maybe this resistance she was feeling to executing the workout when I prescribed it could be removed, and that extra stress she was feeling could be reduced if she fitted it in at the right time when she thought it was was the appropriate time. Very difficult to do as a coach because when you're trying to balance swim, bike, and run in a in a long term program, you're getting the timing of those sessions right is, is pretty important. But also, I had actually said I'm. I don't know why these injuries are still coming. If if it's a belief that's required in when the session should be conducted and the stronger belief is going to come when you decide to do it, then let's give that a go for a while. Um, and that's what the pathway that we're on at the moment, which is um, handing over some of the reins to the athlete to make the decisions, um, which is quite a new challenge for me. So, um, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely uh, – something that you've got to be uh, aware of, um, but not have a big ego about as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, that's, that stuff is exciting because let's say it works. Let's say that removes the injury. It's like, totally. all right, how how could that work for the other athletes that I'm coaching? Yeah,
0: totally. Totally. It's a, it's a new scenario that um, we're going to explore. Um, you know, Ultimately, the brain decides a lot about how we'll uh, execute, move, adapt, uh, you know, intensity, duration, how long we can sustain things. You know, it starts in, in the decisions in and around our emotions and our brain and, and what that drives in terms of the performance at the muscular level. But then also the, the belief, um, the, the emotional belief that this is the right time to do this workout. That does matter. Um, you tell an athlete to, the, to harden up and go out there and do a workout when most athletes are pretty tough anyway and they really don't want to do it and at their core they're hating doing this workout at that particular time that could be the worst thing for them to do you know as opposed to say take a day off and, and let's do it tomorrow when you feel you're better prepared for it or they could say I'm going to take a day off and do it tomorrow when I'm going to be up for it well that workout that they do when they're up for it is going to be a far more productive workout than the one that they do when they're forced into doing it.
1: Oh absolutely like that mental component is you know a lot of times it is the, the more important one. And um and especially that that belief. It's like, yeah, if you if you think oh, I'm not feeling great. I've got a little bit of a niggle and but my coach is making me do this. Yeah, it's like, well, all right, I'm going to do it, but I'm probably going to get injured, and then yeah. you'll, you'll do, it's it's going to lead to that. So totally, um, yeah, it'd yeah. be interesting to see how that um how that eventuates. and and hopefully it works out. Um, you know, if it's not completely fixing the injury, at least not running into it as, as often. Um, oh, which absolutely,
0: would be- yeah, absolutely, and it, and it empowers the athlete as well. I mean, there is an education process that you have to get to with each athlete to know that they're not going to go crazy. And they're not going to do stupid things if they take over a little component of the program. And we've, we've done that due diligence in this coaching relationship that I'm talking about. Um, she's definitely not going to do anything ridiculous and go off for a marathon run or a half marathon or anything like that. Um, but yeah, no, it's, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, challenge as a coach and one that I'm excited to see what the outcome of because um, the onus of responsibility shifts a little bit. Um, but the, the buy-in from the athlete increases uh, with you know taking over that component of it so I'll, um, fingers crossed that we might be onto something here.
1: Yeah absolutely we uh, I was you know in a session a few weeks back and uh, I've been writing the, the programs for this squad that I've been coaching and uh, one of the terms that we use is best average so trying to sustain your best possible time across the entire set so you're not looking to be a hero at the start and die at the end it's like we want to be consistent and I remember at the end of the session um one of the the ladies in the group she was talking to one of the other swimmers and she just couldn't understand what best average was and it wasn't until um the very end of the session after we'd gone through it that I like I, I chatted with her and she um she thought it was like I think it like sit at about 60%, like an average speed, but your best average (laughs) speed. (laughs) And so it's not surprising. Like if you've never been explained the concept of it, um, how would you know? And so there's all these little things that we just take for granted. As everyone knows this, but you've got to go back. You've got to really just uh, make sure that it's, that it's clear. So, uh, and there's a heap of those things.
0: I've got the same workout. I've got uh, a four by
1: eight minutes, best average effort
0: uh, on the bike uh and the misinterpretation of that by some athletes to others is you know my more seasoned athletes and a lot of the pros they they just pick up on that straight away right okay um he wants four eight minute efforts at very very high power with not a lot of fade um so that's what we're after here but Equally so, there's an assumption that they've done enough of this training to realize what best average, uh, if it actually means, um, mm-hmm. because anyone slightly newer to it could do exactly what you just described as, oh, okay, but so I, I just have to make sure that the averages are the same, but it doesn't necessarily constitute high intensity.
1: It's just like make sure I've got the best average. Yeah, so yeah, what's yeah, that? that's right. <laughs> yeah, or, or they see the term average and they think, oh, so I just like average pace. Like I can just kind of go at what you consider average. Like you can never win run or something.
0: <laughs> you can never <nibble> win.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So um, no, I think that's that's that's, that's really important. And um, in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be. Releasing like a um, like the the couple of workouts that I'm writing for this this squad, I'm going to publish those and yep. um, have so people worldwide can they can sort of join in on these and and we'll have like a, a discussion thread there and people can ask questions and make sure that they're doing it right because I've just like it's I'm amazed that not, I'm not amazed but like there's a lot of um, people who who starts me they're one or two years into it and they they don't know what constitutes a good training program. Um, and again, why would they if they never come from that that world? And so I think this sort of stuff can make such a difference because I'm so focused on the technical side of things yeah. that um, we do a little bit with workouts, but um, we haven't focused a whole lot on it. But if you combine those two, the right workouts, the right technique, it's like that's a that's a powerful combination. Oh. That um, if you get those two right, it's totally. um, yeah, it's a, it's a large part of swimming better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I I agree, and I think it's a great way to get feedback so that that you can fine tune how those workouts are actually presented to any athlete based on the interpretation of it. So put it out there, let, let a few people try it, find out who gets it as you hope they would and who doesn't. And then you can change your, whatever messaging you need to, to make sure that everyone gets it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And one of the, one of the guys I'm coaching, um, is over in the States. He um, he's got a triathlon in, in July. He's pretty new to the sport. And, um, technique wise, we are working really well. Um, but I hadn't asked him about his, like his training programs. Yeah. And, um, when he told me what he was doing in a session, he's got 45 minutes with how long they can swim for their pool booking. Um, yeah. and he basically run through like the drills that I give him, he'd do that twice and then a couple laps of freestyle at the end. Yeah. And I was like, all right, we've got to, we've got to work on this. We've got to get you ready for this triathlon. It's not a huge swim. It's like 750, 750 meters, but, um, all right. So I'm missing this component of, um, uh, yeah of, of your training and yeah. uh so let's let's get this sorted and so um, that's kind of what inspired me to go all right let's let's uh make sure that we cover the our other base as well instead <laughs> yeah. of just just technique
0: <laughs> don't, don't, oh it's catch and pull is, is magical but there's fitness <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah that's right it's like you don't want to forget that part of it yeah yeah
0: she's pretty important
1: yeah um and uh and one of the things that i know you've talked a little bit about recently on on a podcast was uh the swim shoot or like yeah. a um, we'd have like a swim sponge, similar sort of concept. What's yeah. the benefit of using a, a swim suit?
0: Well, it's probably trickled down a little bit from my thinking in and around my pro athletes uh, where the start of the swim is vitally important. I think... Uh, when we look at you know even half Ironman and Ironman uh, swims, fifteen hundred uh, sorry, one point nine k's, three point eight k's, long long swims uh, where you know fitness and muscular endurance is really really important, um, but in the pro race, uh, your takeout speed is 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 could define, um, you know, where you end up at the end of the swim. Now, the swim doesn't win the race, but in in, in this day and age, being in the right bike group um, is going to be hugely influential. And, and if you can get into that bike group, um, you might not get dropped from it. So uh, the swim is so important. But However, if you break the swim down from a pure fitness perspective, um, after about the first 400 metres to maybe 600 metres, most athletes can swim... The rest of the race at about the same pace. Um, but the first four to 600 or the first two to 400 is, is almost crucial to the outcome of whether they can get into that group that they then end up swimming the same pace at. Uh, and takeout speed for the, especially the non elite swimmer who doesn't come out from a swimming background as such, um, tends to be the, the difference maker. Uh, and a lot of my pros um, that I work with, uh, none of them actually come from uh, elite swimming backgrounds, so all of them are self-taught swimmers with with no, uh, no not even surf lifesaving. So I'm trying to solve a problem uh, where the swim parachute is concerned in trying to hold on to normal technique Uh, but create um, load over and above what the athlete's going to experience, even with the use of hand paddles and pull boys, So that that first, you know, 50 metres to 100 metres, we can improve stroke length through good force production, good catch and pull with resistance from the swim paddle, but stroke frequency. Um, We can keep, uh, it'll artificially promote uh, a higher stroke rate to overcome the resistance of the parachute. So I've been sort of playing around with it a bit myself. Um, I, in, in, in all honesty, uh, I've only used it over the years in one or two Um, but I'm, I'm going to bring it into my winter program for a lot of my pros uh, who do have the a strong enough technique. I'm not gonna use it on any of our pros and there are still a lot, uh, many pros who don't have very strong swim techniques, but are very fit, um, but their technique still leaves a lot to be desired. And I I wouldn't impart a swim parachute on a technique that I didn't think was uh, robust enough to not be affected by the extra drag. Um, but I am going to use the, the drag parachute on a couple of the, the pros and elite age groupers because the thing that we want to improve is is stroke frequency over the first uh, two to four hundred metres. Um, that's I think. I've used the tempo trainer. Um, We swim a lot with form goggles that gives you that metric display on the inside of your eye. Um, But without the extra resistance of a a swim paddle, just asking someone to upregulate their cadence or their stroke rate by a few strokes per minute um, is not as easy to do as being forced into doing that. And that's what I see the swim parachute uh, providing us is that extra resistance where the only way to overcome it um, is by increasing that stroke rate uh, And if we can hold on to good mechanics still um, stroke length is going to improve by default because of that extra force production that's required to, to move that water backwards. So it's something that we'll be using over over the winter period for sure. Um, again it's not, a blanket uh, offering across every single athlete. I don't want the the, the paddle, uh, sorry, the, for people with poor body positions or a lot of uh, mechanical deficiencies where they may be crossing the center line or so forth, you throw a parachute onto those swimmers and then all of a sudden you've got somebody who's going to drown. Um, <laughs> but for the athletes that have uh, got a, a, a well uh honed stroke, um, we're going to apply it to them, we're going to just do some work to see whether we can improve that first 200 uh, and that will be the focus of the use of the parachute over winter.
1: Yeah, fantastic. I, um, I mean, I think uh, think of a lot of the top sprinters, like if, if you're thinking of pool swimmers, um, a lot of them will do a lot of this resistance work. And I don't know if you've seen them at the pool. They've got like a this big sort of stand. Um, they've got buckets that you can fill with water yeah. or you can have yeah. the weights and they're, they're swimming against it. So it's, it's a lot of that resistance work yeah. to build that strength required to to have it, the, the speed. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that well, stuff is really good.
0: Well, I've as I said, I've tried to... Um, to manipulate stroke rate over the years in many different ways. Um, it's not an easy thing to change long-term. I think you need something like a tempo trainer uh, to emit a beep so that you can follow that stroke rate. It's, you know, we're all built in or inbuilt with our own um, neuromuscular and biomechanical patternings as we become swimmers and, and up-regulating or even downregulating your stroke rate is not an easy thing to do. But, you know, one of the motivators for me was I watched Lucy Charles swim the British uh, 1500 meters uh, trial and, and nearly win it as a, as a triathlete. And we reviewed her, uh, or I reviewed her stroke on the podcast. And, you know, she's swimming 1,500 meters at a a stroke rate of 90 strokes per minute, um, which for many triathletes out there, uh, they're not even close to holding 90 strokes per minute. Um, And that's even in a pool swim, you know. Um, She was higher Mm -hmm. than the rest of the other swimmers because she's done a lot of open water swimming and therefore has upregulated her her stroke rate. The other girls were in the low 80s um, who finished second and third. But you can't go past the fact that the Brownleys uh, swim and a lot of the ITU athletes and some of the best open water triathletes in the world all have that high cadence rate as well. So we're just, we're just trying to move the, 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 the dial a little bit with some of our athletes because a lot of our athletes are down in the 70s. Um, and in an open water swim, that can prove to be a little bit, uh, it can you know, reveal some of the flaws that a 70 stroke rate will, will, will encounter when you get into choppy water um, mm. or surrounded by a lot of other swimmers. Um, so we're just going to see what kind of effect one, something by the incorporation of a swim parachute has on some of our stroke rates.
1: And if, uh, if someone's listening to this and they're, let's say, they've been swimming for two or three years and they're doing triathlon don't try and go for even like a seventy or an eighty might be too high for you right now. Because, oh, um, yeah. uh, but um, but certainly stroke rate is one very important aspect to to look yeah. at. And I was I was reviewing someone's stroke yesterday, and um, his times had come down. I think he said his next goal was to get um, uh, was to break one twenty. He he just done a one twenty four just in terms of a hundred. Um, but, he, but then his goal was to do a K at um, 1 minute 30 pace. So he's like improved really nicely. And he's sending his stroke. And I didn't give him any technical feedback because he's, he's coming along well, but yeah. it was all about stroke rate. His, his yeah. cadence was around 58, 59. Yeah. Um, and then when I showed him, I, like he was entering very gently. Recovery yeah. was very slow, very controlled and beautiful. But it's like, all right, now we can up the, now we can up the stroke rate. And yeah. so uh, I, I suggested to get a tempo trainer. Yeah. And um, you know, when you're doing some more race pace sets where you're going at like one to one and a half K sort of effort, yeah. um, you might set it to maybe 64 to start with. And just over time, we'll just gradually increase it and get yeah. you more comfortable with it. Because if if you go straight to 70, you're probably oh. going to gas out. Totally.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I also think it's even two to three strokes per minute as a set uh, to just to do. So it's subtle enough so they know that they're actually increasing it, but it's not so much that that all of a sudden they lose feel for their stroke as well. So I agree with you, you know, going from, say, a 58 to, say, a 64 is probably going to be enough to feel like he's moving uh, or moving things a lot more quickly. Um but and and I also like to see you know what is the relationship when we have those lower stroke rates ver, uh, between the stroke and how you know how heavy is their kick because with those lower stroke mm-hmm. rates we do find that um, a lot of people are six beat kickers you know and quite aggressive six beat kickers which is actually quite an uneconomical way to try to get through two k's or or three point eight k's in the water so you just got to try to find that that nice trade off of where we can maybe just dampen down the velocity of the kick keep it there for balance and and helping with rotation but then to transfer some of the propulsive element of the stroke to taking a few more strokes per minute
1: yeah yeah that's that's a good point because um i mean if you often when people are getting the stroke rate up they will kick harder uh, and they'll they'll turn it into a six-beat kick and one of the things that has worked really well with with a lot of the guys i've coached is learning a a four-beat kick and um that four beat kick for a lot of people, it ends up being one kick on one side, three on the other. So it's like, and that's like, that's very economical. You can get great rhythm, especially if you breathe to the one side and, um, and you can do that that pretty comfortably. And so it's good to have that in your, in your your toolkit to be able to pull out when you need it. And um, yeah. And if you can do a two beat, a four beat and a six beat kick, and you can, adjust it like it's it's reasonably advanced it's not um an easy thing to do especially if you're new to the sport but um that's a really good way of developing those those gears and being able to just like sit at a a good pace but make sure that you're not burning too many candles along the way yeah 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 definitely yep no i um i totally agree and um so that's uh that's sort of most of the things i wanted to to cover and um i know uh, i said we'll be about 30 or 40 minutes but uh, i think we have a uh, we're pretty good at talking, you and I. So, uh, but that's 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 what a podcast is all about. So, um, awesome. any uh, sort of final final thoughts, any words of wisdom for uh, for someone listening to this and wanting to become a better swimmer?
0: Yeah, I would get onto your website and I would actually do some online coaching with Brenton Ford. And I'm not saying that <laughs> for any other reason, other than one of the greatest difficulties I've ever uh, experienced as a as a coach. Um, you know, in this coaching business, uh, we've fine-tuned our ability to work with athletes in remote coaching relationships um you know zoom as i've mentioned before uh you know does help build rapport with with athletes as such biking and running um, running is a technical based sport to a certain degree but i'm not a big uh, uh, coach who is uh, very big on trying to change someone's a uh, technique unless it's a for for High injury risk. Um, I do believe that the running mechanics is something that, that is best left untouched. Swimming, however, um, it's not always easy to get really, really good, considered swim advice for people who understand the demands of triathlon. I think it's uh, you get a lot of pool swimming advice from your local coaches and so forth, but the difference between the open water swim stroke and a wet suited open water swim stroke over distances of 1.8, or sorry, 1.9 to 3.8 k's uh, has different requirements than what you might find from what you've been told to how to swim in the pool. Um, And there's not a lot of coaches out there that actually understand that. And you can go and spend a lot of money from a coach at a local pool who's never done a triathlon, never worn a wetsuit, only works for the swim club, and they're going to miss some really big rocks on what you could uh, do to change your stroke. So I like what you did with your 5 cap day catch challenge I know a lot of our athletes signed up for that and got involved in some really good feedback about uh, you know the catch and pull the mechanics of the catch and pull if you, I like the way that the evolution of, of technical coaching has actually moved into the online platforms as well um, because you can send through some videos and do a very, very thorough analysis of someone's technique. And what you guys are doing there, um, you know, there are other uh, organisations around the world that are doing it to that degree. Um, but I really like what you know. your understanding, you've done a triathlon, you've done an Ironman swim, you know what the open water's like. Uh, I think that if you're going to get some... some technical advice do it in swimming but explore the online world as much as what you can get from your local pool so i, I i'm not
1: just because i'm on the podcast brendan i'm not saying that i'll pay for it later don't worry about it. all right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> because, because i do agree that that's the biggest hurdle to getting into and completing your triathlon is understanding how to swim and bringing down the stress and anxiety of um, of both worrying about whether you can swim or not and also hmm. trying to take that into the open water so yeah, we had a lot of athletes uh, love the five day catch challenge. I see it in my training pics all the time. Like I've done my recovery swim, but I did three drills from the five day catch challenge. Oh, nice. so <laughs> it's little things like that that I think um, help because it's not easy to find good uh, swimming resource. There's plenty, but but not all of it's good. Um, so no, I, I think that that's something that people should definitely get on board with.
1: Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that a lot, and I um and for people who are. Um, looking for for coaching. So there's you and obviously a lot of other coaches as well. Um, So best place to just search Fitter Coaching or Fitter Radio, what's there?
0: Yep, so all uh, Fitter Radio, the podcast is on all the major streaming platforms. So you'll be able to find it, but uh, it's fitter.co.nz for any coaching inquiries and so forth. We have other coaches that work for us as well. Um, You know, uh, Coach Tim Brazier, uh, Crystal Hockley does a lot of our nutrition coaching. Um, you know, we have an in-house uh, physiologist, in-house strength and conditioning coach. Um, so all of those, uh, those other coaches work directly with our athletes as well. Um, but, you know, look, we've uh, been around doing this for a while now. So we thoroughly enjoy what we do. And it's always good catching up with you guys because you do such a great job over your neck of the woods as well.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much, Bevan. I appreciate having you on and, um, yeah, looking forward to getting you back on sometime in the future. Maybe, um, when you're deep into the next fast is when we'll, uh, we'll do it and we'll see, see how you're faring.
0: <laughs> All right. All right, mate. I'll talk to you again soon.
1: Thanks for listening to the Effortless Swimming Podcast. If you'd like us to help you become a faster, more efficient swimmer, go to www.effortlessswimming.com.